0: Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorca, here with my good friend, Mikio Braun, who was a previous guest on this podcast, and he is the first ever repeat guest, which uh, tells you something about how highly I think about Mikio, but also because uh, we have a natural reason for bringing him back to the show. And uh, are one, he's giving a talk in London, uh, a, plus to a plus London in early June. And also because this is somewhat of a one-year anniversary for, for Mikio of uh, making that transition from academia to industry. So welcome back to the data show, Mikio.
1: Yeah, hello. Uh, very nice to be back.
0: So let's start with, uh, by the way, for the listeners out there, I will uh, put a link to this episode happening, this post to our previous interview. So you can uh, listen to what we talked about uh at that point in time Mikio was still in academia Um, so first off you're uh, now one year into uh, your role as an industry industrial data scientist so anything that has uh, surprised you so for uh, I guess uh, in particular uh, were did you have make any assumptions that turned out to be uh, untrue and uh uh were there anything that uh, surprised you in particular?
1: Yeah, um, so I think I, I had a blog post a few years back where I was sort of thinking about what's the difference between industry and academia. So my summary there was that in industry you're building things, and in academia it's much more about exploring. So I had quite, I think I had quite some exum- assumptions when I joined, um, but actually, so the transition was quite smooth. So there wasn't a big cultural shock or anything, which was a bit surprising to me. Um, so, the position I have is sort of a lead position on the on more on the technical side. Uh, so, I'm actually not, not doing that much work myself, you know, at a keyboard, but I'm more like leading people and um, setting like the bigger picture and the general direction of things. By the way, and that uh, was pretty. D- yeah.
0: l- let me just uh, jump in here. Just uh, I forgot yes. to mention, of course, that Mikio uh, is the delivery lead and a data scientist at Zalando. So, go ahead.
1: Yes, that's right. So, Zalando is a, a big European uh, fashion retailer. There have two teams. One is uh, who's uh, doing the recommendation service for the whole website, and the other team is building a search backend, which is going to power all of the search at Zalando. Yes. So yeah, there was, so no, was
0: there was there was anything like uh, you did? You had like uh, preconceptions going in, like uh, you would build this uh, awesome recommendation
1: system. That, uh... Yes, I mean, so <laughs> they, they they already have it, so they already have a very good system, right? Yeah. Um, it was more like taking over that. Uh, the, the lead for this team uh, from the delivery side, or so from the side which is sort of responsible for um, delivering the new product and doing the extensions and everything. So I think that the one thing which sort of really surprised me, or which which I sort of expected, but this was still very nice to see, was how uh, how much uh, more emphasis you have on the teamwork. So uh, in academia, towards the end, I was a bit frustrated because it's often that you have these PhD students working on projects, but of course they mostly want to finish their PhD, which makes perfect sense, right? But then sometimes grand- grants run out and people have to change projects, and then suddenly they're on a different project which is not fully aligned with their PhD thesis, and then it's, uh, there's always this conflict, right? Uh, but of course, like in industry, so when you work in a, in a team, then that is sort of what you're paid for, and, and that really makes a lot more sense. So that was a very nice. Um, like thing which, which was very much in line with what I expected. So the, it's very nice to work in teams, and you know everybody's building towards a common goal.
0: So uh, what about in terms of uh, skill set and training? Now that you've uh, kind of interacted uh, with people in industry in a, in a deep deep way, would you change the way you teach and train data scientists?
1: um yes i guess so i mean the people we have they're pretty good so most of them have phds and and they're really good so you can really have like a research level discussion with them and they can also they cannot just apply methods but they are also fine to you know extend methods and really go down on on the like on on the mathematical level and add a term here and then figure out what it is so that's very important but on the other hand i think so you also need a very strong focus on on getting something done right? so it's not not just about like fancy methods but really so if you have a problem uh um, learning so how so, to, so wait yeah.
0: so you're saying you're no longer bound to the
1: conference calendar <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah. it's uh... So actually, I mean, so the, the the one good thing about the conference calendar is always that you have these deadlines, right? So you really need to deliver something a few times a year. So that's sort of different. But uh, yeah, but on the other hand, so yes. So I mean, it's it's much more that you have some some real world problem, and then you have to figure out some way to get something sensible out of the data. Um, and,
0: of, and I guess uh, and I, I, think that's, I, yeah. I guess also, Mikio, the um, the metric, right? So in uh, in academia, the metric is a paper. I have a new algorithm. It's faster or more accurate than yours. Now it's all about ROI, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, that, that's something I think I sort of made this transition for myself already before, right? So they, I mean, these, it's everybody who has uh, some experience in machine learning or data science at, at some point, he sort of realizes that the simplest methods already work pretty well. So the, the thing you do in in, in like in an academia and research that you, you always have to keep exploring it, uh, always have to add one more thing, but that so often that's not required. So, so just use, I mean, so so I just mean, use yeah. logistic regression for everything. Yes, just use <laughs> logistic regression, <laughs> and then yeah, it's more about really understanding the data. And um, so I mean the, it, it's still hard. There are still these hard parts, and but these come off from like really understanding what what it's important for the business, and then putting that into some kind of metric and, and everything, right? So. I think it's very challenging, but it, it's sort of it's outside of this purely formal setting, which, which I think is very interesting.
0: So it sounds like uh, you landed in a in a company where at least uh, you still interact with people at a kind of advanced level. You know,
1: I mean, the, yes.
0: So it sounds like uh, you guys can get really deep into the technology, but also the math.
1: Yeah. So it's. Um... I mean, so in Zalando, they recently, sort of like a year ago, they changed their structure and they now they've focused very much on small teams, so teams of six to 10 people, which are fully responsible for one product. So usually it means, so like in recommendation, we have three data scientists and right now, I think six engineers, right? So it's a very small team and everybody can get fully involved with everything. And then, uh, and I mean, the, the real challenge of providing relevant and uh, personalized recommendation, that's, that's still quite hard, right? So you have to really dig in and, and, and find something.
0: So how does how does this change, uh, if you were to teach uh, data science now? How does this change uh, uh, your syllabus?
1: Yeah, I think I would actually put more emphasis on, on this project work or, or, or let's say, so um, yeah. I mean, so when you start doing machine learning or data science, right, often you focus very much on methods. So you, you learn logistic regression, you learn support vector machines or something or decision trees. But actually, that's just the first step, right? So, so actually learning how to, how to use that on data, how to properly evaluate and all that stuff. Um, this is something some people are not aware of that that is actually sort of what is, what is important. So just knowing about the methods, that's not enough, right? And I think I would try to put more emphasis on that. So it used to be the university where I teach is that usually like in the lectures, you get all this knowledge about the methods, but then in your master thesis, that would be like the first time where you properly learn the whole protocol and how to work with data. Um, And I I think I would try to make that more clear to people who are uh, learning that in that area.
0: So one of the things that you were interested in uh, in the past and probably still an ongoing interest is stream processing and streaming analytics. So it's yes. just, is this something you have been able to do on your first year?
1: Uh, no, not yet. So the, <laughs> the things we're doing right now, they're more like batch-oriented, more the classical thing. But Zalando's right now um, putting to, together, like trying to put together data queues where you can just have events and then that's something that we'll definitely do look at in the future.
0: So were there things that you tried that just uh, uh, failed miserably? Do you have any kind of really
1: funny failure stories? Uh, yeah, not really. I mean, so one, one thing which I found extremely interesting was this uh, this the way that data scientists and engineers work together, which is something I, I really wasn't aware of before, right? So, so we, when I was uh, still at university, like most of the people or many people who end up in data science, um, they are not actually computer scientists, so we have many physicists, uh, which is okay, right, or electrical engineers. So usually they're quite good at putting some math formula into code, but they, they don't really know about software engineering, right? So I thought like, so like data scientists, they are like bad software engineers who are good at something like at, at this math thing. Uh, but now actually it turns out to working with these people, I actually understood that there's also some things uh, which where, where data science are really good and software engineers, on the other hand, are a bit lacking. And that's uh, specifically when, when you work on more open-ended problem where, you, where there's some exploratory component, right? So for a classical software engineer, it's really about like code quality, building something. So they, they always code for something which they suppose runs for many years. So they put a lot of uh, effort in having clean code, good design, and everything. Uh, but that also means if you have a bit more open-ended problem for them, it's often very hard. So if it's underspecified, I, I found that it's very hard for them to be able to, to work effectively, whereas on the other hand, if the data scientist, so they, it's often the starting point is something like, here's a bit of data, this is roughly what we want to have, and now you have to go ahead and you know try a lot of things and figure something out and uh, do experiments um, in, in a way which is also uh, more or less objective, right? So that's something I found that software engineers are not so good. at.
0: So uh, some people also have this notion of the unicorn, right? So the data scientist is also an awesome software engineer. Have you encountered many of those? I guess by definition, <laughs> by
1: definition, there's not that many of them. No, no, it's not. I mean, so the so luckily, actually, so the, all the data scientists in my teams, they're also pretty good at, uh, at programming and also very keen on learning. So you, we have very few of these people who are like really good at Python, but they don't know Java or anything, so they can also do Java. But I, I think it's it's fair to say that there's a a very distinct. Uh, step in quality. So when it comes to code quality, when you switch to software engineers, right?
0: So I guess if, if a data scientist or an aspiring data scientist comes to you and says, you know, I want to become a very uh, proficient and good industrial data scientists, you would basically uh, try to downplay or talk them out of uh, learning too much about algorithms and and methods?
1: Um, No, I think actually, I think this is sort of the foundation, right? But this is just the first step. So I I still think it's very important that you really understand what you're doing or um, and also like what all the, the different parameters you have, what they mean. Right, so, so nowadays, it would be very easy to use something like scikit-learn, but not really understand what you're doing. But so I, I still think, uh, also, as I, as I said elsewhere, like, or, or my blog. It's so easy to have something, you think it works well, but then uh, so it's easy. It's so easy to fool yourself with this machine learning method because it's all just numbers and then maybe you don't evaluate properly, it looks very great. So I think it's good to, it's very important to have that. But so beyond that, you need like really experience and really understand how to work with data. And then if you also have good programming skills, then you're like sh- slowly getting into this unicorn area, I would say.
0: You know, uh, actually speaking of evaluating machine learning models, uh... One of the most popular reports we did last year was Alice Sang wrote about the, uh, evaluating machine uh, learning models in a way that was accessible to uh, industry people. And it just yes. uh, uh. it turned out to be a really popular uh, free free PDF.
1: Yeah. I can imagine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it, it
0: seems like it's one of these things, as you say, uh, it's so easy now with so many of these libraries that are easy to use. You just plug in your data and get a result. But then uh, people don't really know how to uh, read the output or uh, read or understand whether or not they actually uh, need to do
1: more, right? Yes, yeah. Yes, I think that, I mean so, especially for recommendation, for example, this ev- get to get to this evaluation evaluation right is also very difficult, right? Because so in in production recommendation is really it's very interactive. You show something to the user, then the user reacts. Uh, that again changes your data on which you train and stuff like that. And and having like a good offline evaluation that's something that we are constantly discussing. Right. So so and then so it's so for I mean if you have it like a, just a classical classification setting, then it's quite easy, but it can be depending on like the domain and the problem you're looking at, it can actually be quite hard. And then you really need to understand what you're measuring is.
0: What about kind of basic notions like overfitting? Does that uh, is that something that uh, you've had to explain
1: to people? Uh so luckily not no. So that's yeah I think that's one of the things that people already uh, understood. Yeah, but so sometimes it can be quite hard when, like, you have interdependent data. So actually, making sure that the test data is independent of all the rest uh, and things like that. Right. Right. Yeah.
0: So you talked a little bit, or you uh, you implied a little bit about this notion of of uh, going from a prototype to something in production. Yeah. So obviously, when you're in academia, you're probably Mr. Prototype not so much Mr. Production.
1: Yes. But now, but now,
0: but now you have to actually uh, uh, care about uh, uh, things uh, working well in the production system that exists inside their company, right? So.
1: Yeah, definitely. So the, I mean, so yeah, that's, I think that's sort of the, or like that's also a, a thing many people at Zalando often say, so that's really the big problem nowadays, right? So we have, sort of convinced ourselves that data is valuable and that data science can make a difference but how to really put that into production that's sort of still an un... Unsolved problem, or so how, especially organizationally, right? So, how can data science engineers work together in a way which works well? So, the I mean, the the thing like the classical thing I think is that data science work mostly on the prototype, and then when they sort of def- decide on a method, then they hand this over to the engineers, and then they're going to re implement everything,
0: right? So, they rewrite re- 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 the entire algorithm,
1: yes. of course.
0: Yeah. So, data scientists may have done everything in Python, and now everything is in Java.
1: Yes. Right. I mean, so this is like the, that's one way you could do it. Right. But then of course the problem is it takes time to re-implement everything. Uh, And in a way, so it's already. And also um, Mikio, what about uh,
0: if you think of the algorithm as kind of important to the point of kind of DevOps important, right? So in other words, uh, you need to make sure that the algorithm, an algorithm works well. If it doesn't, you get, you get notified and you have to fix it.
1: Yeah. So who
0: does the fixing at that point? I mean, uh, if, so the software engineer doesn't under, understand the underpinnings of the algorithm, right?
1: So yes. Yeah. Exactly. So the they actually I think it's we need to get to a point where they work much closer together. I mean, which we also do. So the the model we have right now. So it's still that the engineers are responsible for the production system. The data science are responsible for the data analysis. But of course, they work very closely together when they work on the like on the same uh, on the on the actual production code yeah but there are many things so for example for many data scientists it's often they often think that the data doesn't change right so so usually when you when you learn and you always you get the data from somewhere and then you you start you know doing the data analysis and then you have a model at the end but in reality data comes in all the time and you have to retrain and that's that's something um it's, it's quite different setting somehow right so it takes also to this
0: touches on this notion of uh... I guess A/B testing or even bandit algorithms for models.
1: Yes. Yeah. So there's sort of this duality between so like in for the. Data scientist, he has this offline evaluation, and then of course, uh, when you want to bring it into production, you do A/B test first, and then after that, you still you have to constantly monitor your your metrics, you know, to see whether something is changing or not. So it's uh, it's very closely. So I think like long term, actually, may might come to a point where. So the data scientists they, they are still doing like their part with prototypes and, and, and very like hacky kind of code. Uh, but actually I think maybe once they found like the right model, then they, will, they are actually going to write some production code, which is going to be used as some kind of library within the production system, right? So that way, um, there's actually some code base which is shared between the two sides. Right, and uh, right, right, right. that way, it would also becomes easier uh, also to iterate on on the model, right? So it's not like you have to go back to...
0: Exactly, because doing... uh, in, in many ways, that defeat kind of... Uh, uh your ability to be agile and innovate fast, right? So if, yes, there's, if uh, there's this wall, it's, your tooling and your production system should be such that a data scientist can write production code without having to rely on someone else.
1: And so, and I think it can be done in a way that writes sort of the the all the heavy lifting or the um, resilience and uh, so fault tolerance. That's something that's taken care of, and there's a very clearly defined interface into which the data science can plug, and they don't really have to care about all the rest. Right? Yeah, but because them, they're, they're like, writing.
0: They also tend yeah. to write in these high-level languages like Python.
1: Yes, a lot they might need to learn like Scala or Java, but then at least there's like a clear defined interface and then can really focus on the code and write a pretty clear, uh, like clean class, which doesn't have too many dependencies and then the framework or the production system takes care of all the rest. So I think that's, I mean, we're also not there, but I think that's something that's like the direction I want to explore myself and see whether that works out or not.
0: By the way, Ed, the yeah, one of the things that uh, uh, this br- brings up, right? So this notion of prototype to production, and how you can have certain things that are true in your prototype, but uh, fall flat when it comes to production. One of the things that uh, I was talking to someone about recently is this notion in in a real time system, right? So what you really care about is that end to end pipeline, right? So from the time you absorb data into your messaging system until you do something fancy with it at the at the end, right? But then people get caught up, Mikio, in the uh, in the features of the individual frameworks that govern this step, right? So what features does Kafka have? What features does the Spark streaming have? What features does yeah. the storage layer have? But then it doesn't matter in the end because what you want is what features does my end-to-end pipeline have, right? So, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's certainly, I mean, so one, maybe, yeah. what well, the thing with, with all these um, frameworks or one it, it can get very, uh, yeah, distracting in a way, right? So I think these many of these um, big, big data pieces. I'm, I'm sure I said this before, like in the last, <laughs> the last interview we did. Um, so they're still pretty new, and I think they're still also looking for the right kind of abstractions, right? So it's not like like a SQL database where like 30 years ago people decided that oh, this is the right inter- interface. So they are constantly adding features, slightly changing the way they are modeling computation. Um, and sometimes I think it doesn't really fit, but then it, it's easy to get distracted there and uh, trying to fit something on on a system which doesn't really fit and, and things like that. Yes.
0: So, what um, having worked in industry for a year, do you think that uh, if you were to talk to uh, uh, an aspiring PhD student, uh, you would have some interesting problems for them to work on? Now that uh, you've been out in the so-called real world for a while.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. So I always thought that this, the PhD is actually a nice time where you can sort of relatively independently really dig down into one area, you know, and, and learn everything about it, and that's that's the nice thing about it. So I think that's the it's good. So, but I think if you if you want to go outside later on, you you should also you know start.
0: No, but I mean, thinking, I think, think don't you it. think that in many ways, in uh, when it comes to big data. Uh, much of big data is an industry. So by definition, yes. some of the more interesting problems that you guys are grappling with, the academics probably uh, aren't considering because they don't have the scale that you have, right? So.
1: Yes, yeah. I think that's that's generally a problem, right? So I mean, with this whole big data that like companies like Google, they have so much data and it's very hard to compete in the industry. Yeah, but I and so... And I also uh, are,
0: also uh, there are uh, they come across problems that uh, maybe uh, you may not consider in academia because you just don't have that scale.
1: Yes, exactly. And I mean, especially like recommendation systems, it's or I you mean, know, actually, it's many, many areas. So they sort of have their data set in which they're working on all the time. And then they're not aware of many problems or many challenges you face with real data, I guess.
0: Speaking of which, actually, you did a video for us on scalable machine learning. And that was, yes. actually, that was in a way kind of a bridge video because uh, I think you kind of taught some of that material when you were still in academia. And then uh, a few months into your job, you did this video. So did, uh, the, does any of your experience in industry inform uh, what, you, what you covered in that video?
1: Yeah, so in this video, actually, yeah, so you're right, so that's, uh, I I tried to cover both, like, I tried to cover the, uh, like, the mathematics uh, and the algorithms for large-scale learning, but also very practically, like, how how you would implement that in Scala and then Spark. Um, I think, actually, so that's that's something I also already wanted to do in academia, but then there was lots of, like, discussion about what exactly the lecture is, and in the end, it turned out to be very, very uh, formal and mathematical. Right. Right. but yes yeah but i think it's uh, uh it's definitely like this this applied so uh, applied mix of so this all this big data technology for someone who really comes from a purely data science background it's quite complicated so you have it's all, it's all java based you know yeah. you have to learn about all these java build systems so i tried when i was still academia uh, i did a few like introductory Sessions to my colleagues, but you could really see that they said, "Okay, what is this? It's so complicated. It takes so much uh, tooling just to compile something." Yeah. So I think the so in a way I was already at that point before I left academia. But the combination there is definitely something you you won't easily find in academia, I guess.
0: Speaking of which, actually, um, uh, I I I don't have it in front of me right now, but you had a funny tweet recently about deep learning. Do you remember? Yes. That tweet? <laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> No, I just—I was just wondering what what actually has changed about deep learning that it got so. Uh, we have more right data. <laughs> yeah. No, I got I got actually quite good answers. So data is one thing. We have more data. Yes. Um, one thing. I, I so said, no, no, actually, yeah. Let's yeah. take a step
0: back. Because, okay. Uh, yeah, you tweeted this in the context of someone who was a machine learning researcher. So you were wondering. Well, wait a minute. This stuff has been around for a while, right? Isn't that yes. The context.
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean, in a way. So, it, I mean, so the. I think the, the general like neural networks they were in, invented in the 80s, but of course computers were much slower back then, so you couldn't train the networks of the size we have right now. And then there were actually a few um, new methods for training really large networks, but this was like in the mid 2000s. Uh, so stuff like layer layer-wise pre-training and things things like that. Um, Yes. So there was a, but, but still it took more years. So right now it, it really is very, very, very popular, right? But then, but, it's uh, a,
0: but then you started having uh, companies like Google, Facebook, Microsoft have massive corpuses of data, yes. right?
1: And then on yeah. the outside,
0: you even have something called ImageNet.
1: Yes. I mean, so I think what really changed is so we have all this data and then they managed to solve really relevant real world problems with that, right? And, and and then so and because of that they started to make money and if if there is money then suddenly there are jobs and suddenly things look very very uh, interesting for everyone right
0: yeah and so, then so, uh, I mean, and then <laughs> at this point at this point the uh, the deep learning community is state of the art in several areas right so vision and speech come to mind.
1: Yes, but I think this is something that, that, like, recently, so over the past few years, uh, like, in research, they were solving more and more problems using deep learning, right? But these this were, this were things where we, before that, there were algorithms which were uh, maybe more hand-designed in a different way. So it's not like they really solved problems which, which couldn't be solved before. They just showed that they could also solve them with deep learning, which, which of course, is also nice, right? So it's, it's like one method... Which seems to fit many many application areas, which is very nice. But there, and there, I think there, there, it's yeah.
0: getting really complicated too, right? So they have in addition they have this thing called the uh, called the inception architecture, which I think has uh, forty two or, or one hundred fifty layers.
1: Yes, yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean so, uh, one one other. So the, the third remaining uh, or the third reason I think why it's quite popular is now that we have really good uh, open source libraries. Right, where everybody can plug together big, right, really big piano networks and train and them. Right, TensorFlow. Yes.
0: and then in the so Spark then... in the Spark world, there's I I wrote a list recently in the Spark community. There's five different uh, initiatives, you know, around. Yeah. It. So so because the idea there is a, uh, you know, you can implement all of these in a few machines or a single machine because it's all GPU based, but uh, yes, yeah. the training time is still days, right? So.
1: Yeah, that's why. So if you hard.
0: can use a cluster, you can cut the training time to hours.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I mean, which is very nice. So it's uh, I mean, when I was a student, so I still like the first so neural networks, and the first lecture was just about backprop, and then the next lecture was about you know, or there was an exercise where you actually had to compute the back the update rules for yourself and then implement them. Uh, but then at some people at some point people realized that you can do this using the chain rule and everything. So in a way that you can just compose. Uh, different ne- network layers, and then you can automatically compute the uh, the update rule. So that was very nice. Yeah.
0: Well, there 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 actually the uh, more recently I think uh, what I personally found interesting is the uh, the move of neural networks to sequences, right? So the sequence to sequence yes, yeah. using uh, I guess the LSTM is one of them, but also just uh, I guess there's still a chain rule, but it's a probabilistic chain rule. But it seems like that. Uh, for machine translation in particular, they've had great success. Right?
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, on the on the other hand, right? So the I think the, like what, what people usually don't uh, admit easily is, for example, that um, so you, what you what you said before. So the, the architecture of these networks is sometimes very very complicated. It's impossible and, to understand what's going on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I think it also takes like really long to find the right architecture for a problem, right? So it's it's not yeah, like yeah, there, so it's, it's like there, you there's can always, definitely yeah. a
0: lot of uh, uh,
1: oral tradition in, yes. in art. Of it, Right. Yeah. 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 And then also like from from many colleagues from academia. also like like so. Uh in quotes like older people like me so people in their 40s or something uh, they, they also a bit um, so they don't like this, this thing too much because as I say so the deep learning is just like a black box right so right. So before right. that we had many algorithms where we actually sort of maybe understand a bit about the mechanisms behind cognition or whatever that means right but with deep learning it's just like millions of nodes and nobody
0: yeah someone pointed uh, out to me because really, I said well I, yeah. I pointed out to my friend Ben Rack well uh, so support vector machine is also a black box, but he said, what, compared to deep learning, it's not a black box. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, so but you know, like, the yeah.
0: other trend, Mikio, that I've noticed just recently is this notion of the hybrid, where basically you use deep learning maybe for representation learning, right, so for the features. Yeah. And then you top it off with something else like SVM or a uh, random forest. Have you been
1: yeah, hearing that's... about this? Yeah, I know. I I don't know. So I think that's also something that has been done before. Right. <laughs> actually, right. To be honest, like already uh, in the nineties. Yeah. I mean, so that's. Um. I mean, that that that's actually the, the the most interesting question about these neural networks. Like, right? so do they or, or do they not somehow learn reasonable internal representations of the data? So actually, so one of my last PhD students I supervised, uh, Gregoire Montavon, he was actually exactly working on this. So he was trying to understand. How that works, and we we could at least show that, like from layer to layer, you get some representation, which is more fit to represent the kind of
0: yeah yeah uh, prediction what, you, you want know, to make. I thought that was kind of the point that uh, from layer to layer you get higher order representation.
1: Yes, so we couldn't really show that. So we sort of measured the oh, you um, mean show so, uh, show theoretically or empirically? Um, I think in the end it was mostly empirically Yeah,
0: yeah, because that. I yes. think I think basically deep learning is mostly empirical, right?
1: Yeah, there's a very little theory. So he worked at the end. He had one paper where he sort of was trying also to explain what happens. I don't know whether he, yes. Yeah, but anyway, so this is the, I mean, this is the real, so that's also, so that I think that's the main question, right? So we know as humans, or we think we know that we get this, this really good abstractions. So like from the, from the visual input, we get very quickly to a point where we sort of have representations of objects and we can reason about what they do. And uh, I think right now it's still unclear whether this deep learning really also has this kind of thing or whether it just learns something where it can do good prediction or not.
0: And uh, I think uh, sometimes also uh, with, uh, with deep learning, I think that uh, some, sometimes I, I wonder whether or not uh, it's kind of going to be a method that's going to be around for a while, just because uh, one, the companies that have the most data like uh, Google, Facebook, have invested so much into deep learning, not just uh, in terms of methods, but engineering, right? So they have many engineers who know how to scale these models in production. Um, So let's say you have a competing method, uh, you'd have to be able to show some good results on smaller data in order to get their attention, right?
1: Yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah, um, I mean, it's also, it's and also I mean if you really have lots of data then you can create fairly large um, neural networks which are, can also represent which can learn all kinds of problems so in that case it's, I mean it's it's a good fit so it's um, I mean maybe, I think mostly it's like people are a bit you know so they they don't really like that you you don't really understand what's happening right right <laughs> right, right right but uh,
0: like but you know point. I mean as you point out uh, as uh, my other friends like Ben Recht have pointed out. Uh, This whole machine learning space is cyclical, right? So there was a time when SVMs were the king. Yes. Uh, So do you foresee a time when there would be a uh,
1: different king of the hill? Yes. I don't know. So far, I mean, I've sort of been in this space for the past um, almost 20 years now. (laughs) So there was a lot of that. There was always some fashions which took over for a few for some while. I think, I mean, what's different now is this really, really huge uh, right. industry adoption that hadn't been there before. Before, right. So, right, yeah. right,
0: Yeah, yeah. Which brings me to AI. Yeah. So uh, obviously deep learning is not AI, although some, sometimes people confuse deep learning with AI. But uh, um, so uh, AI itself, there's many approaches to it. I think uh, some people... Uh, Probably the main example people cite might be IBM Watson, which is not really yeah. deep learning-based, right? Yeah. But uh, I, it's mostly around the applications that I'm interested in now that you're seeing small manifestations of it, right? So from Yeah. From, from uh, AIs that can learn how to play games, yeah. I guess chatbots, there's a lot of those. Um, yes. So anything in this space that has got your eye?
1: Um, yeah, no, not... <laughs> No, not really. So the I don't know the I think there was recently this uh, Deep Deep Mind had this thing which uh, or was it just today or something. So which won against some uh, Korean grandmaster and go. No, no, no,
0: the top go player. Yes. Beat, uh, but it was just the
1: first game. So. Uh, it was so just It's going to be game. a best okay. of five, yes. I
0: believe. Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: Yeah. So I don't know. So this is in a way I think it's very impressive, but I mean the, the way that we've been trying to play these games with computers it was always very, very different from the way, right? So like even back in when before machine learning, they would just enumerate all the different ways and then do, try to do some planning there and then it was right. just brute force. Right, yeah. right, right. So I'm, I'm still sort of waiting for a bit for this thing which I said earlier. So some algorithm which is able to get internal representations uh, about the world which then allows it to reason about the world in a, in a way which is very similar to what what humans do. So I take sort of the... you're
0: not uh, that worried about AI
1: safety. No, no it's. Uh, <laughs> I mean, okay. So now I'm. So what I'm worried about actually is that we give too much too much power to um, AI algorithms before they're really good, right? So I think. Right, right. So if you, I don't know. I think it's uh, maybe. Actually, you know, uh,
0: speaking of that, if you talk to people who work in autonomous vehicles, right? So the self-driving cars, yeah. they will point out simple things that self-driving cars can't do, you know? Yeah, like? Like for example, uh, it, it could be like in a certain part of a city with a roundabout, right? So it just gets confused easily. Ah, uh, yeah. You know? um, or or I think the difference between, I don't know, I, I guess someone holding up uh, their hand, the to sig- to signal stop.
1: Yeah. See,
0: I forget the exact examples, but uh, I was surprised, actually, that the state-of-the-art uh, self-driving cars uh, are still kind of uh, at that point where they can't do simple things. Right? So.
1: Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, in a way, I think it's also like with many of these algorithms, it's actually uh, sort of that we humans tend to... Uh, interpret things as or systems as being intelligent so we attribute much more intelligence to systems than they really have right so uh, I mean if you look at I don't know Google image search or something so nowadays it's very good but before that it used to be so like the first I don't know 20 hits were very good but then it got much worse um, by the way do you, it, do, you see, yeah.
0: do you see machine translation getting better
1: because <laughs> it <laughs> seems like it's bit. still <laughs> pretty bad right yeah, it is right. So I think it's always, so. I, I always think like well, that's that are the interesting cases, right? So when the machine learning breaks down, then you really see that these things work in a in a very different way from the way we work. And and just because when it works, we sort of think, oh, it's working very nicely. So it's uh, we have not made a lot of progress, but actually it's it's done in a way which is but totally to, different uh, than what to, we do. To be
0: honest, it's it's functionally good in the sense that I can take yes. a, a newspaper article in German. Pass it to machine translation, and I get yeah. the gist of what they're talking about. Yes. It's not pleasant to read, but I understand what it's about. No, right?
1: oh, no, I mean, so we, I, I, we will probably get there. So we are making a lot of progress, and uh, and it's also going into mainstream, which is also very nice, right? So I mean, things like Siri, like like this Apple right um, thing. So there would well, be, well, like I said, one of, totally of the uh, one of the areas
0: ago. that people are excited about is these chatbots, right? Yeah. Whereas a company, you can go op- maybe deploy one of these and then it might be able to answer enough of the basic questions. Right?
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 Um, I noticed that one of your uh, papers was cited by uh, Ben Recht and his crew. Uh,
1: they did yes, this paper uh-huh. on a
0: scalable kernel machines. So, was that a blast from the past? I sent that over to you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah it was there was actually the uh, paper where i sort of um put half of my phd thesis in It was very theoretical stuff about like eigenvalue convergence uh, it seemed they used uh, the like the error estimates i did for some some um estimate of of how the algorithm scales which is very nice
0: by the way there's a few things that uh, you know after we've talked a little bit about deep learning but there are a few of these techniques that uh, i kind of miss you know like i don't know kernel kernel methods and yeah. They're, they're kind of uh, out of fashion,
1: right? So. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. So I think for, for certain kinds of, of like this um, data, which is very, very high dimensional and very sparse, they are still like, state of the art, I think. So the, the paper from like three years ago from Google, where they do um, predicting which ads, what the probability is that some ad will be clicked in some context. Uh, and that's like the, the, one of the, these classical approaches where you have lots and lots of features. So you have all the words. And then so you have like a million dimensional feature space. And for this kind of thing, linear methods still work very well. And then you're just training like linear SVMs, or so linear logistic regression. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I agree. So I mean, the, the nice thing about these things were that the, um, or I mean, so it depends on who you ask, but so you actually had to put a lot of uh, manual work into good feature extraction. Right. Right. right, And then now I think you still have to do this somehow, but more indirectly by designing the, the uh, architecture of the network in, in the right way. Right. But it was also nice. So you had the method and you sort of knew what it did and then it was sort of up to you to define and uh, extract the right features.
0: But uh, basically, every uh, even deep learning, even though sometimes there's some confusion out there, even deep learning it's, uh, relies on labeled data. It's super Supervised. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, so in closing one of the topics that i've always uh, been fascinated in school and uh, i always get a kick uh, uh when i uh, when i uh, realize that everything comes down to it you know how people talk about linear algebra a lot but uh, you know how about optimization everything comes down to optimization doesn't it? Yes. i mean if you look at the, if you look at the deep learning that's stochastic gradient descent right
1: yes yeah i mean that's I think that this is like engineering has found like a small number of ways in which you can, I don't know, describe systems and, and yeah, optimize. Optimization is one of them, right? So the other would be like something like sampling. Right. So it often comes down to this. So you know. uh,
0: I always wonder how much, uh, you know, uh, how much optimization should people know, right? So, w- yeah, obviously, you don't need to know any because uh, it's all implemented in libraries. But for for this, you know, if for your own, I guess, uh, appreciation of how these methods work, I wonder if there's like a a minimum amount of uh, convex and non-convex optimization people should know about.
1: Yeah, it's uh, so. I mean, in this in this um, lecture on scalable machine learning. Uh, there, there's also like it's mostly optimization, as you can guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's actually,
0: why I uh, I brought it up to you because I know that you're yes. also one yeah. of these people that appreciate it, right? So,
1: all right. So I, it's it's actually quite nice. So, the, but the nicest, or what's what's really interesting about these things is that all these algorithms are very very fast. That they all exploit some uh, something which is very special about the optimization problem at hand. Right. So it's. Uh, it's not just they say, okay, we just take like the, the normal optimization problems, but they sort of have found a way which for this special problem is able to, uh, so it leads to some update equations, which are very easy or very fast to implement. And uh, that's very uh, like intellectually, very satisfying to see so something I,
0: like Actually, that. now I, as I'm hearing you talk, now I've uh, found a rationale for calculus, which everything yeah. comes down to a gradient, the derivative right? Yes.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, this uh, like everything you learn in the first years of math, it's it's uh, the foundation for really everything. So it's yeah. really cool. pays well, off to learn that well.
0: Well, this has been great. I'm glad you're settled in at Zalando. Yes. And uh, uh, we're really looking forward to your talk in uh, Strata London. So th- th- uh, I highly recommend it to people who are attending Strata London, particularly because there's going to be a lot of practical advice there. Um, and also, I will uh, make sure that people know about your uh, video. us. Yes. You
1: Thank you very much.
0: You can follow Mikio on Twitter at Mikio Braun. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.